enough, said Theresa May last week. She wasn't trying to call off the election in view of the polls, although perhaps she wishes that she had done in retrospect. No, she was responding to another tragic terror attack in the UK. Less than two weeks after a suicide bomber took 22 lives in Manchester, three men hired a van, crashed it on London Bridge, leapt out with knives to attack the public, and took another eight. Enough is enough, said Teresa. You see, understandably, over recent weeks, there's been a growing sense in the UK that we're under attack. And that this country, like so many others, has a determined, a cunning, and a ruthless enemy. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, as you go about your Christian life, do you realize that you have an enemy too? I don't mean ISIS or terrorists that are seeking to wreck the country in which we live. I'm talking about an enemy who wants to wreck your faith, who wants to thwart the purposes of God, who wants to dumb your mind and blind your eyes to seeing the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. And he is more determined, and he is more cunning, and he is more dangerous, eternally than any other that we may see as an enemy in this world. So as we come tonight to Nehemiah chapter 4, and do keep it open in front of you, I, I'm convinced, as I've studied it this week, that this is what God wants us to know. He wants us to know that we are at war with a fearsome enemy, but that we are at war with a mighty God. So let me just remind you of where we're up to in Nehemiah. God's people, the Jews, have returned to a battered and ruinous Jerusalem, having been exiled and held as slaves under foreign kings for 70 years. The city has begun to be rebuilt, starting with the temple in the book of Ezra, but we've seen that it's not even a scratch on the splendor and the glory of the city beforehand. As we pick up the story at the start of Nehemiah, we find that the walls that surrounded the city still lay in ruins. That the gates of this once great city are still in a pile of ashes having been destroyed by fire. It is a disaster. And Nehemiah knows it. He's still in exile himself as cupbearer to the king of Persia. But when he hears that the city lies in this wretched state, his heart is gripped. Gripped with a desire to restore that city for God's glory. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that this desire is one that God has put on his heart for him to do. So he spends months in prayer, he spends months planning, and then on his return to Jerusalem, he motivates and mobilizes people people from all walks of life to begin rebuilding this wall for the glory and the honor of God. But so what? What's this got to do with a church in Scotland 2,000, more than 2,000 years later? 
thousands of years later. We've seen over recent weeks, uh, looking at the first few chapters of this book, that this building project in Nehemiah is something being done with God's direction because he put it on Nehemiah's heart. It's one being done with God's provision as his gracious hand has been upon it at all times. And Maddie's preached through those first three chapters has helpfully pointed us to a direct parallel today already. You see, Jesus has been crucified. He is risen from the dead and his people have been instructed to go and to make disciples of all nations. This is the building work that we as Christians have been called to. Not walls built of bricks and mortar, but a new city, a new Jerusalem built, as 1 Peter 2 puts it, of living stones. It's a process called disciple-making. Work again that is done under God's direction as it's his word that instructs us to go. Under his provision as he makes those stones alive. And tonight we're going to see that it is done with God's protection too. Because just like we'll see in Nehemiah 4, being involved in God's building project, attempting great things for God, is going to bring opposition. Remember, we are at war with a fearsome enemy. So here's where we're going tonight. I've got two uh, key points from this text. Number one, the tactics of our enemy. And number two, the protection of our God. So number one, the tactics of our enemy. Look with me again at verse one to three. And the first tactic they employ to stop God's people in their tracks as they sought to build the wall. Note that it's not a volley of arrows, but it's an assault of the tongue. Mocking words intended to discourage. We're reintroduced to Sambalat and Tobiah, the Ammonite, whom we've already met in chapter 2. And we saw that they were greatly disturbed that Nehemiah had come back to build this wall. And they laughed at them then. And not only that, but now in chapter 4, we see that this scoffing and laughing and mocking gets even worse. Incensed to hear that Nehemiah and the people have started this project, that they haven't just given it up already, they pour sarcasm and ridicule at them with the express aim of discouraging them, to make them abandon their plans, give up, and go home. Look at Sambalat's pompous words again in 1 and 2. What are these feeble Jews doing, he says. Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Can they bring those stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? And then in verse 3, Tobiah pitches in too, rubbing salt into their wounds, scoffing at the efforts of their back-breaking labor so far. What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. In other words, your work is pathetic. You're achieving nothing. Can you imagine how discouraging it would be to be one of those Jews? Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be faced with this verbal assault as you set out on what was already a daunting task? 
Perhaps you can. Perhaps it's not actually that far from home for us. Because the truth is, whenever we set about God's work, whenever we go about this task of making disciples, we're opening ourselves up. We're making ourselves vulnerable to what people might say in response. And that is difficult. Those colleagues that you'll have to work with for many years to come, perhaps. Flatmates that you might have to share a roof with for many months to come. Spouses, parents, brothers, sisters, children. People we can't escape at all. And so whenever we know that we need to declare the gospel to them, We fear what they might say. We fear what they might think about us. And I know from my own experience just how powerful the words and the attitudes of those around us that we engage with daily and must can often be enough to make us give up this task that we've set out to do and stop before we've even started. But that's not what these Jews do, as we read in verse 6. Nehemiah tells us that they didn't give up. They worked with all of their hearts instead. And we see that when this happens, the enemy doesn't give up either. Look at verse 7. When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to the walls had gone ahead, despite everything that they'd said, all of those words that we heard, they were very angry. And since their words had been of little use in causing any harm, you know that nursery rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, the words have no harm, and so they turn to sticks and stones instead, hatching a violent plot intended for danger. 7 and 8, and verse 11 too. And now it seems that God's people are in fact surrounded by danger on every side. Sanballat and the Samaritans from the north, the Arabs to the south, Ammonites to the east, Ashdodites to the west, all armed to their teeth and unswerving in their commitment to stop God's purposes. The risk of attack seems to be imminent. And I don't know if you've ever thought about how you might defend a city from attack, but being outnumbered, Surrounded and having half-built walls is not where I would start. I just want to pause for a moment and think about how abnormal it is for us that as a rule of thumb, we're not facing this sort of threat. The early church was violently persecuted, of course. Christians throughout all of history have been violently persecuted. Even today, probably this hour, In other parts of the world, our brothers and our sisters in Christ are being violently persecuted for their faith. We we are in the small minority to not be opposed in this way. And I think there are two possible explanations. On the one hand, of course, we should thank God for his common grace that we live in a society where, by and large, if someone did, they would be locked in jail 
they would be condemned for that sort of violent behavior. But secondly, perhaps, perhaps we need to examine our lives and see whether or not we're cracking on with God's work. Maybe we never face attack because the enemy that we face knows that mocking words are enough to stop us in our tracks, enough to make us give up. And even here in Nehemiah 4, after mocking words and a violent threat, we start to see the strain of it all on the people in verses 10 and 12. Look how cracks begin to appear in their resolve. Uh, They start saying that the strength of the laborers is is giving out. uh, And there's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. Then other Jews come in verse 12 who have overheard the enemy's enemy's plotting. uh, And they come with urgency. And they come with panic in their voice because they think that they're in a futile situation. Wherever you turn, they say, they will attack us. But it is faithless living that leads to despair. Because faced with heaps of rubble and a relentless opposition on every side, they become their own worst enemies. What they forget is that this is God's project. This is what God has put on the heart of Nehemiah. It is what God intends to happen and has been blessing, providing for, and protecting so far. Through every challenge that they faced, God has seen it through. And it's only now that they turn their eyes off him, as these verses record, and onto their difficult circumstances that they lose hope. Friends, our war is a spiritual one, as much a battle with our own hearts. It might be what others say that fills us with dread. It may be the prospect of physical pain or violence, persecution in the future that causes us to coward. But it is the blindness of our hearts to our God that ought to cause us to weep. Do you know this God? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, Tonight, I want to say first just how welcome you are and how glad we are that you're here. But I also need to tell you what the Bible says. You might not realize it, but the Bible says that you're actually at war with this God. You might not think that you're against him. You may never have said a bad word against Christians or ever wished harm against them. But you're at war with God. All people have been at war with God. We're like rebels trapped behind enemy lines. God has made us. This is his world. He is the king. But we've committed treason. We're in his territory. We're under his jurisdiction. But we have set ourselves against him. And God wants you to know that you don't need, you don't need to go on living that way. You don't need to be an enemy. 
You can be conscripted into his workforce, into his people, as his child. This is the heart of Christianity, that Jesus died on the cross to forgive our rebellion and to bring us to peace with God so that he would cease to be our judge, our punisher, and executioner and become our father. That is our greatest need, that he would be our father. So would you turn to Jesus this evening and would you lay down your weapons. And if you do that, and if you've done that, then you are building the wall and you are under attack, at war with this fearsome enemy, but at war with this mighty God. And so let us turn our eyes to the protection that he gives. And I want to note six, uh, six things from this text, six means that God has given us so that we would be protected. The six things that we ought to wield in the face of opposition as we endeavor to make disciples. And the first is this. He wants us to pray. Look with me again at verse 4 and 5. Hear us, our God. It begins. And then at verse 9, again. But we prayed to our God. You see, whether it's the mockery of words or the threat of violence, Nehemiah and the people pray to their God. Well, no matter what they're facing, they know the importance of prayer. And we must ask if that is our port of call too. Like any little child in distress calls out to their parents, don't they? Well, do we call to our Father in heaven? So we should plead with him for our protection. Or we should plead with him that he would deliver justice just like they do in verse 4 and 5. We should plead with him that he would make our efforts to build his kingdom fruitful. And plead with him that we would finish the task that he's called us to. And then, then we should prepare. That's number two. We should prepare Look at verse 9 again. They pray and then they post a guard to watch. Then look at verse 13. They have just heard of the violent plot against them. And so they position themselves at the most vulnerable parts of the wall where the danger is highest. You see, having prayed, they don't just sit around complacently. But they get ready for battle. They are watching they are waiting, they are alert to the danger that they face. And they're prepared to fight too, aren't they? Verse 13 tells us they have swords, they have spears, they have bows. Implements that are going to be able to beat back the enemy. Tools to win. Weapons. Ephesians 6 is really helpful for us in telling us how we can do the same. Paul writes this, he says, put on the whole armor of God. And one of those weapons he says to wield is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He says, so that we may stand against the devil's schemes. As we face this great foe, we know that God's words are enough to keep him at bay. Remember Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4? 
tempted again and again by the devil. If he were to give in, God's plan for salvation would be over. But Jesus stands firm in the face of attack, wielding the sword of the Spirit, that word of God to defeat the enemy. So do you wield it too? Do you wield it? Or is it gathering dust? Number three. They are proactive in completing the task that has been set before them. Note that once they have prepared to repel this attack, they don't just sack in building the wall, but they keep on building. Look at verse 17 to 18. Even though they carried a sword or a spear in one hand, or or even have their sword strapped to their side, they're still working, they're still making progress in what God has called them to do. And this one is so This one is so important for us to remember. Because in Nehemiah 4, the whole purpose of the opposition, as verse 11 tells us, is not so much about just giving some individuals a hard time. It's about stopping the building of the wall. It's about stopping God's work. And so if in the face of danger, all that they did was pray and prepare even if they did it in the very best way possible, but stop building that wall, the enemies won. They don't lose their lives, but the cost comes to those, all those, who could have sought refuge behind that wall in the future. So friends, keep building. Keep working. Keep your mind set on making disciples in the face of opposition. Number four, we need, we need one another. Look with me at verse 19 to 20. It says that the people are really widely separated from one another along that wall. And the danger, of course, is that if an attack does come, the people will be far too spread out to fight together. So Nehemiah has appointed this trumpeter so that if an attack came, he could sound the alarm and everyone could run to fight together because there is strength, of course, in numbers. And this is what we need to remember, that we need to be willing to blow that trumpet ourselves in times of opposition. You know, it is not weak to recognize our neediness. It's not shameful to need help. It's just being honest. You know, we need one another so much. We need our church family. We need our growth groups. We need fellowship with one another throughout the week. And those people that we meet with, they need it too. They need it too. Husbands, your wives need you and vice versa. Parents, your children need you. Students, your fellow students need you. All the saints, we all need you. Everyone needs one another in the family of God. It's how he has designed things. So friends, for all that this text urges us to keep on building through thick and thin, do not neglect each other. Number five. Remember the Lord. 
Remember the Lord. As the people begin to panic, as we saw in verse 10 and 12, as they turn their eyes off God, Nehemiah's rallying cry isn't, oh, pull yourself together, you big softies. No. Look what he says in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. It is that same Lord who has delivered them from exile in Egypt. Uh, the same Lord who has a track record of saving his people. The, the same Lord who frustrates the plans of the enemy in verse 15. The same Lord who will fight for them in verse 20. We are at war with a fearsome enemy. But we are at war with a mighty God. Remember the Lord. That is the remedy for panic. That's the remedy when we lose our hope and feel like we just can't do it and won't do it and should give up. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and he fights for us. And of course that means that we can face opposition, number six, hopefully. And this is our concluding point. We can face the schemes of our determined, ruthless, cunning and dangerous enemy, the devil, Hopefully. Hopefully because as we attempt great things for God, as we seek to take his gospel to our friends, to our families, to our city, to our world, as we seek to build his kingdom and see this new Jerusalem built with living stones by making disciples of all nations, Christ has not only promise that he is with us until the very ends of the age, Matthew 28, as he sends his disciples out. But in Matthew 16, that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will never overcome it. That whatever the enemy throws against our Lord Jesus, he will swat it away. And he is appointed a day when the enemy will be fully and finally defeated, no longer to fight or oppose God's people or God's purposes again. And since that is true, then what of it that we are at war with a fearsome enemy? Because we are at war with a mighty God who fights for us and who has the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let us pray.